Welcome to Holocaust Histories, the podcast featuring mind-boggling stories from the Holocaust, remarkable tales of heroism and horror that are guaranteed to amaze you. Season 1. In the prime of their lives and careers, boxers' dreams are snatched and replaced by nightmares. Fighting now takes place in concentration camps. The winner lives another day. The loser is killed. Dive into the astonishing stories of boxers' resilience and courage in the face of incomprehensible terrors. Each episode features a boxer with a different nationality and a unique experience during the Holocaust. Holocaust Histories, available wherever you get your podcasts. The Citadel of Herat, also known as the Citadel of Alexander, located in modern northwestern Afghanistan, is an imposing fortress. Dating back to 330 BCE, when Alexander the Great had ordered its initial construction, having since passed through the hands of numerous prolific military leaders, Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, and now, in March 1732, squarely under the thumb of Nader, the commander-in-chief of the Iranian army. The conquest of Herat from the Abdali Afghans being yet another success, added to a quickly growing list of impressive accomplishments, including his recent lightning campaign waged against the Ottoman Empire. Nader walked alone, mired deep in thought, atop the citadel's sand-colored, brick-fired battlements, offering a far-reaching view of the city and its surrounding landscape, a vantage point from which he was able to observe the busy endeavors of his 30,000 intensely loyal troops, some, as usual, out in the fields beyond Herat, undergoing their brutally exhaustive daily routines of training and formation drilling, while others, a detachment of thousands of his musketmen and Kizilbash cavalry streamed out of the city, heading south to squash the last remnants of the Abdali rebellion. However, it was not south that his eyes were drawn, but rather west, across the width of the Iranian Empire, where disaster had recently struck, brought about by the foolhardy actions of his Safavid king, Shah Tamas II who had just presided over a debacle of a campaign against the Ottomans, topping this off by losing all of the territories that Nader had reclaimed in the prior year, before signing off on a humiliating peace treaty. Worse still, doing nothing to attempt salvaging the dire situation, simply returning to Isfahan to resume his opulent and self-indulgent lifestyle. Nader. Upon earlier learning of this bleak news in the presence of his leading advisors and officers, darkly brooding, expressing deep concern for the future of the Iranian Empire, the empire that they had spilled their blood to restore, only to have all their progress undone. But inwardly, as he now slowly walked the walls of the citadel alone, Understanding that this calamity had been the moment he had been waiting for, his opportunity to break the Safavid, God-ordained stranglehold on power. In truth, 
there was nothing really keeping him in Herat, and Nader could have returned to Isfahan right away to begin addressing the situation. The Abdali rebellion all but stamped out in its final death throes. However, Nader calculated that it served his ambitions far more to let the Persian nobility and clergy, especially those backing Tamasp and thus standing in Nader's way, to sit with the dishonor and humiliation that they had helped to facilitate. Using this time to quietly reach out to some of the most disaffected governors and religious authorities across the empire to gain more political support, thereby enhancing Nader's already immense influence. Knowing that few would be able to argue against the case that Tamasp, and thereby the Safavid dynasty's right to rulership was tainted, almost beyond repair. Requiring the steady guidance of one possessing Allah's favor to set the empire to rights. Nader, undefeated in battle, clearly exalted by God, being the obvious choice for this task. And when the time was right, he would later return to Isfahan to take it. And although not yet ready to claim the crown for himself, inching him one step closer to the summit he so desired. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Part 4 of the series delving into the fascinating lifetime and exploits of Nader Shah, a profoundly gifted military strategist and tactician, often referred to as the Second Alexander and the Napoleon of Persia, whose battlefield prowess alone makes for an exceptional story heightened to a level that legends are made from, understanding his lowly starting point, coming from an irrelevant lineage, born into a poverty-stricken existence, struggling to survive within a chaotic and unforgiving environment in Khorasan, the northeastern frontier of the Safavid Iranian Empire, that was being assailed by various enemies from without and within led by the incompetent kings of the late Safavid dynasty, adding up to a particularly dark period in Iranian or Persian history at the turn of the 18th century, and an undeniably brutal existence for its inhabitants, including Nader. One that molded his personality and character, forcing him to claw and most literally fight for survival every inch of the way. But, being a time of great upheaval, this also bringing about huge opportunities for those with the unique martial talents to thrive in such a violent world. Nader, fitting this description fully, tall with a sturdy frame, whose intimidating stature, voice, no-nonsense personality, and penchant for bravery transformed him into a natural-born soldier and a leader that others rallied behind commanding their loyalty, eventually raising his station to that of commander-in-chief of the Safavid army, a position through which he salvaged the Iranian empire from the wreckage of its collapse to restore Shah Thomas II of the Safavid dynasty to the throne in 1729. But with Nader as the puppet master, pulling the strings of his king as the true source of power behind the throne, 
an astounding ascendancy. That was still not enough to satisfy his appetite for more power, more control. And as we'll uncover in this episode, neither endeavoring to do what he did best in the ongoing pursuit of this, using military force as the avenue through which to continue building acclaim and support, while at the same time undermining, both from a religious and political standpoint, the Safavid claim to rulership. However, before we get into the details of how all of this came to pass, it's time for some shout-outs. Because I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Joe C. and Heraclius Alpha into the ranks of the Warlords of History Immortals. With another honorary mention also going out to Michael W. My deepest appreciation goes to you and the existing Immortals for directly supporting my work and efforts through the Warlords of History Patreon page and for helping to cover the costs associated with making this podcast a reality. Now, as a quick reminder, this episode forms the fourth installment of the multi-part series on Nather Shah. So if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to the first three parts, you may want to do that first, to have a more complete frame of reference in view of the people and events that we'll be covering off in this episode. But in order to help you with this, or freshen up your memory as to where we left everything off, here's a quick summary of what happened in Part 3. Early in 1728, despite the Shah in exile, Thomas II, finally seeing a glimmer of hope and shifting momentum in the goal of reclaiming the Iranian Empire, largely attributed to the actions and leadership of his new and undeniably talented commander-in-chief, Nader, the Shah, prodded by his royal advisors, alarmed with the immense power that Nader had accumulated, began spinning petty intrigues to test the loyalty of his subjects and their compliance. A test, almost certainly, first and foremost directed at Nader, who immediately understood what was at stake. His position and influence. Possibly, his very life hanging in the balance if he were to give in to the whims of his unstable king. Resulting in Nader launching a military coup to firmly take control of the Safavid army based in Mashhad. Shortly afterwards, followed by attacking and soundly defeating the forces arrayed around Tamasp. This point, marking the unofficial rise of the 40-year-old Nader, to Shah in all but name, with Tamasp relegated to the role as nothing more than a figurehead, Nather's puppet. With Nather now squarely in the driver's seat, immediately setting to work to rebuild the Persian army, instituting strenuous regiments of near constant training and drilling, while demanding nothing less than the utmost discipline from his troops. Also of fundamental importance, modernizing the Iranian army with gunpowder weapons. In fact, building his army around a core of musket-bearing infantry, including the development of an elite class of infantrymen called the Jazayirchi, the outcome of which was a loyal, sharply professional, but also savagely effective force that Nader masterfully led to conquer the regions of northern Khorasan 
eastern Mazandaran, and then rein in the Abdali Afghans just to the south of Khorasan, conquering the city of Herat in July 1729, pausing for mere moments before marching off towards central Iran to boldly take on the Hotaks, the Afghan-based dynasty that had toppled the Safavids from the Persian throne seven years prior in 1722. Nadir, although heavily outnumbered, daring to challenge Ashraf Hotak's control over the empire, showcasing dazzling displays of generalship and tactical maneuvering to deliver spectacular battlefield victories at the battles of Memandust, Khwar Pass, and finally at Murshkort. Three devastating blows from which there would be no recovery for Ashraf Hotak, allowing Nader to reclaim the capital of Isfahan and place Tamasp on the throne, restoring the Safavid dynasty's rule over the Iranian Empire. However, with this largely being a charade, Shah Tamas possessing no actual authority, acting in servitude to Nader, closely instructed on when, where, and how high to jump. Nader using Tamas to legitimize his actions and commands, beginning to expand his iron grip from that of the Persian military to that of the empire. Bringing us back to where we last left everything off in part 3. In early 1730 at the city of Shiraz in south-central Iran, with Nader and his 25,000 strong army having recently left Isfahan to chase down and crush what remained of Ashraf Hotak's forces, leaving him toothless and resigned to his fate, executed by the rival Hotak faction in Kandahar some months later. The commander-in-chief spending the next few weeks in the south re-establishing control of the region in Tamasp's name, encountering little resistance in the process, before settling down in March to celebrate Nowruz, in the Persian language translated to New Day, referring to the Iranian New Year festivities that are timed to the spring equinox. The Nowruz celebrations in 1730 being particularly auspicious for much of Persia, given their unexpected change of fortune in the recent months, capped off by much of Iran's liberation and the harsh Afghan occupation put to an end, an exceedingly bright start to the new year, all made into a reality by Nader, winning him immense personal fame and prosperity, hailed by many as the savior of Iran, certainly propelled by Shah Tamasp's public shows of gratitude bordering on groveling during the earlier court proceedings in Isfahan, with more rewards having been piled into the commander-in-chief's lap. Wealth, lands, even a gateway into the royal family through Nader's marriage to a Safavid princess, Razia Begum Safavi. With Nader undoubtedly aware that all of this, his rise and authority, were deeply intertwined with his hold on the military and its ongoing success. A military that was now, by all accounts, completely devoted and loyal to Nader, in large part because of the capable officers that he had installed into its upper command, positions earned based on merit. Men like Tamasp Khan Jalayar, 
who would become one of his most trusted advisors and battle-hardened generals, having served under Nather for around 15 to 20 years, since the early days of his military career in Khorasan. Demonstrating Nather's ability to build and inspire long-standing loyalty among those that followed him, but also linked to his obvious leadership skills and capabilities in overhauling the Persian army and molding them into an exceptional force with high morale. The soldiers convinced that only Nather could lead them to victory. Some of this, of course, attributed to Nather's undeniable bravery, sharing the dangers that his men were facing and leading from the front during battle, but also because Nather was a loud self-advocate, not shy about owning all of the victories to date, a sentiment believed and echoed by his officers. But interestingly, with a notable shift to this line of reasoning happening at around this time, in what could perhaps be best described as a burgeoning public relations campaign, with Nather and his officers increasingly weaving in religious notes to traverse the gap associated with the wider acceptance of his newly established authority in the effort to overcome the disdain linked to his meager lineage, at the same time planting the seeds of his future legitimacy for the crown itself. Alluding that, Allah was playing a fundamental role in his ascension, and thus all their successes to date, and that the troops were of vital importance to the equation. As quoted in part one of the series, Nader making statements such as, you now see to what height it has pleased the Almighty to exalt me, while also referring to his troops as God's victorious instruments. Statements of the kind that would henceforth become a regular addition to his letters and speeches from there on in. Because, you see, with Nader as the shot caller and Tamasp as his puppet, this was not a configuration that was universally accepted with prominent and competing factions of the Iranian aristocratic, administrative, and religious elite desiring Tamasp to be unfettered, freed from Nader's hold. Some believing that Nader's irrelevant ancestry gave him absolutely no right to be dictating the policies and direction of the empire, while others simply wanted Nader out of the way so that they could have their go at controlling Tamasp as their avenue towards personal enhancement in wealth, titles, and power. Though for now, all internal dissenters were pretty much powerless to do anything about it, other than grumble, since Nader had been publicly hailed as the savior of Iran by the Shah, not to mention possessing the unequivocal loyalty of the royal army. Nader acutely aware of all of this as well, and when combined with his actions thus far, especially in reference to his ongoing manipulation of Tamasp and ever-tightening grip on empire affairs, I tend to believe that this had cemented the idea for Nader that the Iranian throne was indeed within reach, evidenced by how well everything had gone for him in Isfahan since its liberation, resoundingly clear to all that it was he, not Tamasp, who was the authority figure to be reckoned with and appeased, with few willing to oppose his unofficial rule. Moreover, winning the commander-in-chief new and influential friends within the royal court, 
notably Hassan Ali Beg Bastami, who, in addition to being a prominent and respected Safavid official, responsible for overseeing the fiscal affairs of the empire, also knew how to expertly navigate court politics, and that keenly understood which way the wind was blowing, prompting him to throw his full support behind Nader. In fact, also functioning as Tamasp's keeper in Isfahan on Nader's behalf, while he was abroad on campaign, and always careful to be honest with Nader and follow his commands to the letter. In time, proving himself resourceful and loyal enough to become one of Nader's closest advisors and confidants. However, as powerful as Nader had become, with a growing circle of capable associates, both old and new, his humble lineage, a lineage lacking the God-ordained or divine right to rule, like those of the Safavid dynasty possessed, this remained, at least for now, an insurmountable roadblock to him taking the crown. Things were far too fragile within the recently reclaimed Iranian Empire to make the attempt, as Nader would have been astute enough to realize that he couldn't simply cast the last of the Safavids aside without igniting a full-blown rebellion against his usurpation. What he needed was a stronger case, a more unassailable rationale or reason to break their God-ordained right to rule if he intended to replace them, while continuing to build upon the foundation of support he had established for himself growing the number of nobles, regional governors, and religious leaders bowing to his will. And just as his subsequent military successes had been crucial to arriving at the lofty position that he found himself at now, I'm convinced that this reasoning would have heavily impacted Nader's next actions. Aiming to clear Iran's domains of foreign occupiers, recover its lost territories, and deliver retribution to the entities that had caused so much turmoil through the 1720s. And really, there was no shortage of options for him to choose from that were still working to tear the Iranian Empire apart, including the Russian Imperial Empire that continued to occupy territories in northern and northwestern Iran, what remained of the Hotak dynasty, notably Hussein Hotak, the Shah of Kandahar, owed retribution for the Hotak rebellion that had triggered the collapse of the Safavids and their brutal takeover of Persia in 1722, but also because he was determined to maintain Kandahar as an independent kingdom, while busily stirring up allies to help in this effort. One of the most notable being the Afghan Abdali tribe based in the city of Herat, that although Nader had conquered in the prior year, was soon embroiled in the early stages of an internal power struggle, in part sparked by Hussein Hotak's intervention, and thus threatening to nullify the recent peace agreement that Nader had reached with them. An already exhaustive list of objectives to tackle, topped off by the most dangerous of the Persian Empire's many problems, their perennial arch-rival, the mighty Ottoman Empire. That, as we had covered in the last episode, had used the chaotic period after the fall of the Safavids to overtake huge portions of western and northwestern Iran, including their lands in the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Kermenshah, 
Loristan, and Hamadan, the latter three also giving the Ottomans extremely advantageous footholds across the width of the Zagros Mountains that could be later used as staging points to invade central Persia. This in particular, heavily pressing upon Nadr, urgently directing him to set his sights on the Ottomans next, aiming to reclaim the lost Iranian domains, knowing full well the extent of their deep military resources, and if he were to fail to address this now, realizing that once the Ottomans were able to refocus their efforts, there would be very little of Iran left for him to rule. Though, luckily for Iran, this happened to be a period wherein the Ottomans were distracted and unable to organize a concentrated push deeper into its territories, a notion that Nader would have been well aware of. Spurring him in March 1730, while appearing to be getting ready to settle down at the city of Shiraz for the elaborate Noruz celebrations, instead, under the cover of night, evaporating from the city, leading his army of 25,000 through rapid and arduous marches covering a distance of nearly 900 kilometers to the northwest, reaching the enemy-occupied city of Navahand in western Iran that the Ottomans were holding with a force of 15,000. As he neared Navahand, again reverting to night marches to completely surprise the Turkish troops positioned there, catching them so off guard and unprepared for their arrival that the Ottomans were unable to assemble an organized resistance. Some minor clashes occurring, but that were easily swept aside by the incoming Persian advance forcing the bulk of the Ottomans to beat a hasty retreat north to the city of Hamadan, linking up their strength with the Turkish troops stationed there, 30,000 in total, intending to hit back at Nader's approaching army. The two forces coming face to face near a town called Malayar, about 50 kilometers east of Navahand in the late spring of 1730. The Battle of Malayar Valley representing the first significant engagement of what would be called the Ottoman-Persian Wars of 1730-1735. On the surface, this conflict looking like somewhat of a laughable contest between the two nations. The Persian army, led by Nader, fielding 25,000 troops, facing a rather frightening disparity in going up against the mighty Ottoman Empire, which, at the time, had an estimated 115,000 soldiers on its central payroll to call upon, not counting the hundreds of thousands more militia troops serving under regional governors all across the empire. But within this configuration lies a sense of the challenges and distractions facing the Ottomans and their enormous empire that spanned three continents. Founded in 1299 in northwestern Anatolia, aggressively expanding from there over the course of the next four centuries to absorb much of Western Asia, Southeastern Europe, and Northern Africa into its domains, largely attributed to the skill and dominance of the Ottoman army. Initially, like their Safavid counterparts in Iran, completing their conquests on horseback by the points of their swords, lances, and arrows. However, as early as the 1380s, steadily increasing and successfully incorporating gunpowder weaponry into its military 
to not just continue, but accelerate their expansionist tendencies. In fact, being among the earliest adopters and arguably the most effective nation to do so on a massive scale unlike anything the world had seen to date. The creators and innovators of a military system built around a central corps of infantry musketmen, supported by artillery and cavalry, with neither, like other firearm adopters such as the Mughal Empire on Iran's eastern flank, heavily borrowing from this model. Some of the key units of the Ottoman military, including the Sepahi cavalry, a medium-armored cavalry class, some of which fought as classic horse archers, others armed with lances and javelins, and their famed elite infantry, called the Janissaries, a rigorously trained class of slave soldiers, initially armed with Turkish yatagan swords and bows, excelling in the use of both, but later, during the 15th century, swapping out their bows for muskets. The Janissaries, in particular, playing a headlining role in the Ottoman army, allowing for the expansion of the empire that by the late 1600s covered an enormous 5.2 million square kilometers. But also, ironically, resulting in the Ottomans becoming the victims of their own success, trying to administer their massive empire while bumping up against foes in all corners and forcing the sultans in Istanbul the capital of the Ottoman Empire, formerly known as Constantinople, to aggressively expand their military expenditures, which became unsustainable from a financial standpoint. A hole in their pockets, eating up too much of the national gross domestic product, accounting to a burden of nearly 60% of the yearly GDP. The solution for which was the decentralization of military power the sultans requiring regional governors, also called pashas, to help bear the brunt of military costs and responsibilities by raising and maintaining local armies of their own. An unforeseen byproduct, however, was granting these two entities, the Janissaries and the provincial governors with their personal armies, more political influence on empire affairs these groups often possessing contrasting and diverging interests, while at the same time placing severe limits on the authority of the Sultan in Istanbul, in fact often determining who sat on the throne. A rationale that Gabor Agostan in his paper, Military Transformation in the Ottoman Empire and Russia, 1500 to 1800, sums up quite well when he writes, the Ottoman Empire took a reverse path and evolved into a decentralized, limited monarchy whose history between 1617 and 1730 witnessed seven dethronements out of ten reigns, and where the central government's control over resources and the means of organized violence was limited by local power brokers, and thus considerably diminished compared not just to its rivals, but also to its own 16th century self. This, of course, also impacting Ahmed III, the Sultan at the time of Nader's attack at Navahand, who was struggling to rule under this transition of power that was evolving within the Ottoman Empire. Ahmed III, in fact, 
in the midst of dealing with a rising Janissary-led rebellion to his rule, when Nader struck the first blows of the Ottoman-Persian War in the spring of 1730. A rebellion that would eventually force his removal from the throne, abdicating in favor of Sultan Mahmud I later that same year. This in particular, the Ottoman infighting and the tenuous position of Ahmed III, undoubtedly factoring quite high in Nader's decision to launch the attack in the spring of 1730. Because there remained the very real danger that if the Ottomans managed to get their act together and leverage their positions in western Iran to make a concentrated attempt to conquer more of Persia, this would have been ruinous to the Iranian Empire and Nader's future ambitions. But in launching this bold attack, daring to stir up war with the Ottoman Empire, Nader was undertaking a monumental challenge and some serious risks. Understanding that, regardless of the issues plaguing Sultan Ahmed III, the Ottomans still possessed ponderously deep pockets and enormous military resources, greatly outnumbering the 25,000 that Nader had with him. As mentioned, around 115,000 troops on the royal payroll, and conservatively, at least another 100,000 in the service of regional governors within the territories of the Eastern Ottoman Empire, bordering Iran. A scary enough prospect, made more uncertain by another significant unknown. That was mentioned in part 3 of the series, in that Nader's reformed army had been originally designed for besting cavalry-focused adversaries, such as the Afghan Abdali and Hotak Gelzai warriors. And although the Persian army had gained some valuable experience against the Ottoman infantry and artillery under their belts due to the Battle of Murshkort in the previous year, the Ottoman forces deployed in that encounter had been of dubious quality, also under the command of Ashraf Hotak, although a capable commander was inexperienced and not well-versed in gunpowder warfare, argued to have not incorporated these units effectively into his overall strategy, beyond their initial defensive setup. However, in early June of 1730, if any of these doubts were crossing Nader's mind, outwardly he projected nothing but steadfast confidence as he led his force of 25,000 soldiers towards the city of Hamadan their route taking them through a valley near the town of Malayr, where the Ottoman commanders had ordered their army to form up, blocking Nader's passage. In what would be called the Battle of Malayr Valley, promising to be an entirely different test for his troops, in stark contrast to that of their earlier Afghan cavalry-focused adversaries, finding 30,000 musket-bearing Ottoman infantry though of note not Janissary troops, supported by artillery and a small proportion of cavalry at the ready. The Turkish infantry assembled in a long linear line, across from the shallow river that flowed through the middle of the valley, separating them from the Persian army. Nader, in response, organizing his 15,000 infantry into three divisions, across the length of the Ottoman line, on the opposite side of the small river, leading the centermost division himself, where his elite Jazayirchi stood. Artillery units interspersed in between the blocks of musketmen, 
and with his force of 10,000 cavalry held slightly back, the most likely setup being split into two divisions protecting the flanks of his infantry. Unfortunately, this is where things get a little hazy, being that historical accounts don't provide many details on exactly how this battle unfolded. But the generally accepted account is that the two opposing lines of the infantry moved forward, closer to their counterparts, remaining along their respective banks of the river, where, across the entire length of the line, musket and cannon fire began roaring out from each side for some time, though producing little more than immense clouds of smoke within the valley, with only minor casualties experienced on both sides. Both the Ottomans and Persians unwilling to charge into the other and force hand-to-hand -hand combat, wary of each other's ruinous firepower, which would have been devastating to the troops that initiated the approach. Inevitably slowed by the river crossing, allowing their adversaries to pick them off as they attempted fording the river. However, as this stalemate continued for well over an hour, muskets and field cannons continuing to discharge into one another unabatingly over the course of the time frame, with no decisive impact felt by either side, the windy breezes channeled through the mountain valley began pushing the immense clouds of smoke from the musket and cannon fire to the far right of the Persian line obscuring their view to the Ottoman left. Nader, the quick-thinking battlefield commander that he was, in seeing this, immediately ordering his infantry and cavalry on the right to make ready for an assault, keeping some general musket fire on the right going behind the blanket of smoke to maintain the ruse, while the bulk of the Persian right quietly began crossing the river. A ruse that worked to the letter. Shock and dismay quickly befalling the Ottoman troops on the left as thousands of sword-wielding Persian infantry and cavalry emerged out of the thick smoky veil, crashing and slicing into them with terrible ferocity, causing the Ottoman left to crumble, triggering the flight of the rest of the Ottoman army, with neither than commanding all of his cavalry to move out in pursuit. And although we don't know the true casualty rate, apparently eviscerating the Ottoman army, that incurred tremendously heavy losses among its troops, especially when desperately trying to flee the confines of the valley. Another scintillating victory notched in Nather's belt, clearing the path north to the city of Hamadan, liberating it on June 18, 1730, also freeing 10,000 Persian soldiers held captive there that Nader used to garrison the cities he had recently recaptured. From Hamadan, Nader then immediately sending out detachments of his army to retake the provinces of Kermanshah and Loristan, to the west and south of Hamadan respectively, finding the Ottomans essentially powerless to stop Nader's advances over the next couple of weeks, bringing all of the western provinces back under the fold of the Iranian Empire readily scaring off the Ottoman garrisons positioned at these sites, since their field army had been irrevocably destroyed at the Battle of Malayar Valley, meaning no aid on the horizon to help bolster their defenses. Nader continuing with his, what can only be described as a lightning campaign once those provinces had been secured in having his army reconvene at Hamadan, 
and by mid-July, lead them in the direction of the city of Tabriz, about 550 kilometers away in northwestern Iran, where their domains in Azerbaijan and the South Caucasus remained under Ottoman occupation. Though first marching 250 kilometers northeast to the city of Kazvin, to collect an estimated 5,000 troop reinforcements that were added to his army, and although not explicitly stated in historical accounts, were most likely raw infantry recruits from Isfahan. Because, as alluded to earlier, understanding how intertwined his future ambitions were to the strength and ongoing success of his army, in light of all the heavy lifting that they still had to do in terms of clearing out adversaries that remained on Iranian soil, Nader, before leaving Isfahan, had ordered a fury of military recruitment in the aim of building up a massive army for all the trials and tribulations that were to come. The troop unit types focused upon at Isfahan, predominantly infantry and artillery, where they were subjected to the high standards of training and drilling that he demanded, thereby creating a pool of troops that he could call upon when needed. Whereas cavalry recruitment was quite different, since these were more widely available and could be siphoned off among the populace, especially the tribal groups that he came across while on campaign. Nader, after adding to his army, not spending much time at Kazvin, urgently driving his soldiers onwards to the city of Tabriz, in realizing that he had the Ottomans on their back heels, but also because his overwhelming progress had awakened other Persian dissidents to begin fighting back against the Turkish occupation. Internal unrest and violent revolts taking place at Tabriz, ignited and heightened by Nader's approach to liberate the city. On August 12, 1730, the revolts and Nader's army adding together to readily overwhelm and dispatch the large Ottoman garrison stationed there, followed one day later by Nader relentlessly and tenaciously pouncing upon every single opportunity to weaken the Ottomans' ability to respond. Learning that a force of Turks in the low thousands were en route to Tabriz to reinforce the defenders, not knowing that they had already been defeated. Nader's cavalry, catching them unprepared and thoroughly decimating the relief force as they neared the city. The Iranian commander-in-chief's lightning campaign having gone exceptionally well up to that point, outmaneuvering and besting the Ottomans at every turn, leaving only their possessions in Azerbaijan and the Caucasus to be reconquered. This including the lands associated with the modern countries of Armenia, Georgia, and parts of eastern Turkey. Nader poised to undertake this challenge next, but then suddenly stopping. Begging the question, why would Nader ever stop now, given that the Ottomans were so horribly disorganized with their backs against the wall, seemingly ripe to hand over the last of their Persian holdings? The answer for this came in the form of a messenger, arriving at Tabriz, dusty and dripping with sweat from the long and difficult journey, bringing urgent news from across the empire that the city of Mashhad in Khorasan was under threat from none other than the Abdali Afghans. The earlier rumblings of an internal power struggle amongst the Abdali leadership coming to a head, with Zulfikar Khan taking over at the city of Harat, 
forcing Ali Arkan to flee for the safety of Mashhad. Two figures who you may recall from the previous episode that Nader had campaigned against in early 1729, resulting in Ali Arkan surrendering and submitting to Nader. A decision that undoubtedly spared the lives of his people, but nonetheless remained a huge source of contention among the Abdali, eventually allowing Zulfikar Khan, strengthened by outside influences, to muscle his way into power and have Ali Khan denounced. Before invading Khorasan in early August 1730, defeating Nader's younger brother, Ibrahim, in a pitched battle, who Nader had left in charge of Khorasan and then initiating a siege on Mashhad with 8,000 Abdali warriors. Ibrahim desperately sending his older brother pleas for aid amidst the increasingly dire situation unfolding in Khorasan. This threat to his power base, his homeland where he had been born and risen to prominence, shaking Nader's fury, with Nader in fact sending a warning to his brother, saying that he had better hide himself in Dargaz lest Nader kill him when he next saw him. Because as much as the supreme Persian general wanted to continue his campaign against the Ottomans, he couldn't afford to ignore the degrading situation in the northeastern portion of the empire, resulting in Nader offering up a ceasefire to the Ottomans, who were all too eager to jump onto this opportunity for a pause in hostilities. Being that, this offer was timed with the aforementioned Janissary-led rebellion against Sultan Ahmed III that was gaining some serious steam at the Ottoman capital of Istanbul, and that, less than two months later, would ultimately lead to his removal and replacement by Mahmud I. This alongside a tense relationship that had begun to devolve between the Ottoman and Russian empires. Not a surprise in the least, since tempers regularly flared between these two behemoth neighbors. This latest instance inflamed by Istanbul suspecting Moscow of aiding Nader's attacks. And while there is some evidence to suggest that they did indeed provide some assistance, it was nominal in scale, reportedly mostly in terms of intelligence, with the Russians quite content to see Iran beating up on the Ottomans. And so, with the ceasefire quickly agreed upon, this freed Nader to march his army of almost 30,000 troops eastwards in late August 1730. Though of note is that he left behind much of his heaviest artillery pieces, since this would have slowed them down considerably, understanding that speed was of the essence in preventing Mashhad from falling to the Abdali. Nader proceeding to drive his soldiers at a tremendous pace across the width of the Iranian Empire, through punishing marches of up to 50 kilometers per day, under the intense heat of the late summer sun, to cover the 1500 kilometer distance from Tabriz to Mashhad. Entering Khorasan and nearing Mashhad at such a frightening speed, just over a month's time, that Zulfikar Khan, in learning of this impressive achievement with 30,000 Persian troops en route, this prompted him to call off the siege and make their way back south to Herat to prepare for Nader's inevitable response. Also, calling upon a key ally for additional military aid, this being Hussein Hotak, the de facto leader of the Galzai tribe and the king of Kandahar. A strange but strategic turn of events, 
since the Afghan Abdali and Gelzai tribes were typically at odds with one another, but one wisely engineered by Hussein Hotak, who realized that he too was on the figurative chopping block of Nader's future targets, given the actions of his relatives in earlier toppling the Safavids from the Iranian throne and their violent occupation of the empire. Not to mention that he was intent on keeping Kandahar as an independent kingdom. Accordingly, in the attempt to maintain this and stir up problems for Nader to slow his rolling conquests, events that could possibly lead to him dying in battle, because one never knew how these conflicts could unfold, this led to Hussein intervening in the power struggle among the Abdali leaders, supporting Zulfikar Khan. Knowing that this aggressive leader was intent on renewing war with Nader and destabilizing Herat and Khorasan. A rather smart strategy overall. However, the reality of the situation is that the strength of the Abdali military had been greatly reduced in the war and battles against Nader through 1727 to 1729. And while Zulfikar Khan did receive military aid from Hussein Hotak, to the tune of 2,000 to 3,000 Gelzai warriors, this only brought his total count to 11,000 soldiers at most, certainly not enough to try a pitched battle. Zulfikar instead opting for more of a guerrilla style of warfare, smaller surprise cavalry attacks and raids, while also making extensive preparations to heavily fortify the city of Herat, in the aim of having Nader break his army against the walls of the city. And in fact, almost granting Hussein's wish of Nader being killed in the ensuing conflicts against the Abdali, saved by two instances of what, as you may recall in my interview with Professor Barry Strauss, he coined as the term divine providence, extremely fortuitous events that arose to preserve Nader's life. The Iranian commander-in-chief, learning that the siege of Mashhad had been called off, upon entering the region, first heading just beyond northern Khorasan to subdue a troublesome Uzbek tribe that had been causing some disturbances, before reaching Mashhad in early November 1730, and immediately taking steps to deal with the roving bands of Abdali attackers. The first instance of divine providence occurring when Nader was out with eight of his soldiers, scouting the area south of Mashhad for enemy positions when suddenly assailed by a surprise raid of around 100 Abdali horsemen, forcing Nader and his men to shelter in a ruined tower to put up a desperate defense, only saved hours later by a large unit of his musketmen that happened to come by and scare off the Afghan raiders. The Iranian army dealing with the small and elusive waves of Abdali attackers at a painfully slow pace, but also methodically over the next months, allowing Nader to eventually clear out the path to Herat and begin a siege of the city in May 1731, shortly afterwards followed by the second instance of divine providence, when, during the early stages of the siege, a cannon from Herat's walls managed to lob its projectile through the roof of Nader's tent, landing right next to and barely missing Nader, who was asleep inside. And as a quick aside, these two instances also leveraged to build upon the notion that Nader was protected by and held the favor of Allah. The siege of Herat, however, 
like the process of eliminating the Abdali guerrilla bands, also occurring at a grindingly slow pace, in large part due to the limitations of Nader's army. While quick to move and devastating in the field, were not able to mount a significant artillery bombardment, since, as mentioned earlier, most of the heaviest artillery pieces had been left behind in Tabriz so as to not slow their march to Khorasan. Nader choosing to instead encircle the city, in the goal of starving them into submission. Followed by months and months of inaction, the encirclement eventually forcing the desperate defenders to launch a last-ditch effort to break the siege. An attack which was savagely beaten back by Nader's troops. In February 1732, leaving what remained of the Abdali leadership since Zulfikar Khan had fled to Kandahar to finally surrender the city. Where Nader, despite all the trouble caused in their rebellion, showed unexpected clemency to the Abdali at Harat. In the effort to win their ongoing acquiescence, while shrewdly offering an alternative path to regain their honor, in service to him, and in a similar fashion to that of his earlier conquest of Herat in 1729, absorbing thousands more Abdali horsemen into his army. This bringing us to the events that we covered at the top end of this episode. Because, although having earlier learned of the utter military disaster that had transpired under the leadership of Shah Tamasp in western Iran and the Caucasus regions against the Ottomans, which we'll get to in moments, Nader didn't rush back across the width of the empire to salvage the situation. Remaining in and around Herat for some time, stamping out any remaining embers of the Abdali rebellion. With a quick side note being that his brother Ibrahim managed to get himself out of the doghouse in leading a series of assaults to pacify the region for good. Nader opting to not promptly return to Isfahan to begin addressing the setback mainly for two reasons. One, in that Isfahan was not in imminent danger of falling. And two, because Nader wanted the full gravity of Tamasp's military blunder and incompetence to be felt and digested by the Persian nobility and prominent religious figures. As this was the opportunity he had been looking for, a calamity that he could leverage to further entrench his authority and break the God-ordained right of the Safavids to rule the empire, inching him closer to his ultimate goal of becoming Shah of Iran. So, what exactly did Shah Tamasp do? Well, you see, ever since Nader's conquest of Isfahan in late 1729, casting down the Hotaks from their occupation, Nader had only spent a couple of months there before again setting off on campaign in early 1730, remaining absent from the Iranian capital through the balance of the year while conducting the war against the Ottomans his absence continuing into 1731 when forced to deal with the Abdali Rebellion. All of this providing the breathing space that Tamasp needed, who was adept at internal palace intrigues and politics, to begin reasserting his power. In part, cajoled by a faction of the Persian nobility that were looking to use Tamasp as a vehicle for their advancement, while diminishing Nader's influence and those he had installed into prominent positions. So yes, yet another internal power struggle at hand. 
realizing that military success was quintessential to this goal, which would allow Tamas to emerge out from under the dominant shadow that Nader was casting. Triggering the Shah to sober up, put his pants back on, and emerge from the royal harem to call for a renewal of hostilities against the Ottomans, breaking the ceasefire that Nader had established and looking to personally finish what his commander-in-chief had started in the reconquest of the Ottoman-held Iranian possessions, aiming at the Caucasus region. Thomas proceeding to raise an army of 18,000, including the troops that Nader had earlier commanded to be recruited and trained, while also drawing from the garrisons positioned in the key cities and forts along western Persia, and in January 1731, lead them northwest into what would be present-day Armenia. Nader being kept fully aware of all that had been occurring by virtue of his key contacts and supporters in Isfahan, as mentioned earlier, none more important than the likes of Hassan Ali Beg Bastami, who, although unable to prevent what Tamas was doing, was careful to remain steadfastly loyal to Nader and keep him well informed. Nader, although undoubtedly concerned with the growing threat to his position, was unwilling to race back, focused on putting down the emerging Abdali threat to his homeland in Khorasan. Plus, I'm convinced that Nader would have not hesitated to later, if needed, meet Tamasp in combat, confident of his odds in a battle against his king, since it wouldn't be the first time as you may recall having earlier fought and defeated him at Sabzavar. Not to mention that Nader's current field army was considerably larger and a well-seasoned veteran force, in contrast to the 18,000 that Tamas was leading, filled with untested, raw recruits. The force that Tamas had led into the Caucasus, where, at least initially, the campaign kicked off to a pretty good start, Tamasp scoring a victory over the Ottomans and then setting siege to the city of Yerevan in early 1731. Before everything quickly unraveled, his campaign going terribly awry, primarily due to three main factors. 1. The weakened garrisons that Tamasp had pulled from to build his army and that he left behind in western Iran, that were unable to hold back surprise attacks resulting in the regions of Hamadan and Kermenshaw once again recaptured by the Ottomans. 2. Tamas failing to adequately protect his supply lines from the Caucasus to Tabriz, which forced him to break the siege of Yerevan and begin retreating back to safety in the late summer of 1731. Alluding to the third factor, the Shah simply being a poor military commander during his retreat, being caught by an Ottoman army and forced into battle, against a force that included their elite Janissary infantrymen, which proceeded to outmaneuver and annihilate Tamasp's army. Thousands of casualties, with Tamasp barely escaping the encounter, and the city of Tabriz also falling back into the hands of the Turkish forces. By all accounts, a complete and thorough disaster, undoing almost all of the gains achieved by Nader in the previous year. A humiliation made worse by the peace treaty 
that Tomas had but little choice to accept in late 1731, as Nader was putting his finishing touches on the conquest of Herat. With Sultan Mahmud in Istanbul agreeing to hand back Hamadan, Kermenshah, and Tabriz in exchange for Tamasp, ceding all of their territories in the Caucasus to the Ottoman Empire, in perpetuity, renouncing any future claims to these lands. Shah Tamasp returning to Isfahan in early 1732, and despite having presided over a disastrous campaign, doing absolutely nothing to address the stinging blow that the Iranian Empire had just been dealt, as if nothing were amiss, retiring back to his palace and harem to resume his opulent lifestyle. Whereas Nader, while stationed in Herat, upon learning of the outcome of the campaign and the humiliating treaty, immediately began expressing public disgust, while using these events to seek out additional support amongst the Persian nobility, governors, and religious authorities. Evidenced by a letter that he sent to a governor in southern Iran, conveyed to us by Lawrence Lockhart in his book, Nadar Shah, of the campaign and the treaty, Nadar stating, The bearing of such a matter is far from honor, and is repugnant to a proud nature, since the frontiers, as laid down in the treaty, are contrary to the pleasure of the divine being, and are opposed to what is expedient for the kingdom. Just a sample of the communications being sent to prominent and influential figures all across Iran, also emphasizing the divide between his and Tamasp's lackluster achievements, while also informing them of his latest conquest over the Abdali, gaining yet another victory for the glory of the Iranian Empire. The unwritten question in between the lines, being, who would you rather have leading us, him or me? With Nader, after his letter-writing campaign and having fully quashed the Abdali rebellion, finally returning to Isfahan in August 1732, with more political ammunition than ever, arriving at the head of his 30,000-plus army, newly augmented with thousands of fierce Abdali horsemen. But, interestingly, not approaching in an aggressive manner, nor showing any signs of ill will to his beleaguered king. In fact, quite the opposite, taking a disarming and respectful stance with Tamasp. Shortly after arriving, inviting the Shah to a lavish feast in his honor, along with much of the Persian aristocracy, top military and religious figures, and members of the royal court. At some point during the festivities, reportedly pulling Tamasp off to the side for a private discussion in Nader's personal apartments, ostensibly to have a chat about their respective campaigns, indulging Tamasp by listening intently as he told of the trials and tribulations of his campaign, while also indulging Tamasp's noted thirst for alcohol, having the servants ply the Shah with copious amounts of wine and getting him rip-roaring drunk, before having Tamasp, who was barely able to stand, practically dragged back to the main hall, where he was dumped in an unceremonious and bewildered mess, heavily intoxicated. Nather's loud and commanding voice breaking through the merriment and music of the feast 
to begin harshly denouncing Tomasp with disgust, emphasizing his ineptitude and failures, and despite his Safavid lineage, clearly not having God's favor. Then, taking the bold step to ask all present if such a man was fit to rule Persia. To get the ball rolling, prefabricated and prearranged shouts emerging from the crowd, influencing the others present to join in, and ultimately, answer Nather's question with an emphatic no from the attendees, resulting right then and there in Tamas's forced abdication and the elevation of his infant son, Abbas III, to the throne. But under Nather's close tutelage, who was named as regent, granting him unparalleled official authority and powers, one mere step away from the crown that he so desired. In the days that followed, cementing this by brutally eliminating any few that dared to question what had happened, killed or exiled, this including Tamasp, shipped far off to Mashhad where he would be isolated and out of the way, unable to cause any further disturbances. Through the balance of 1732, allowing Nader to focus on the administration of Iran without any oversight or interference whatsoever, installing supporters to important positions and governorships, while also making elaborate preparations to reignite the war with the Ottomans. The earlier agreement that Tamasp had made with them invalid by Nader's perspective, worth less than the paper it was written on, using this time to also raise an immense army at Isfahan that swelled to well over 100,000 troops, estimated at 120,000 strong, including his core force that had traveled with him from the east, the remnants of Tamasp's ill-fated campaign, new recruits, and some troops sent by regional governors, all eager to demonstrate their loyalty to the commander-in-chief newly named as regent, with Nader, lastly, revoking the name that Tamasp had bestowed upon him five years prior in naming him Tamasp Koli Khan, servant to Shah Tamasp, since that was a name that for obvious reasons he was no longer willing to endure nor be associated with, instead adopting the title of chief servant of the state promising to guide the Iranian empire back to its former glories, as only one who was favored by God would be able to do, and which, in time, would allow Nader to traverse the last remaining step to the title that he truly desired. In the next episode, we'll continue with Nader's story as he uses his official position as regent to show off some pretty impressive diplomatic skill, convincing the Russian Imperial Empire to hand back all the Iranian lands it had occupied since 1723, before recommencing war with the Ottomans through another bold invasion. This time, however, the Ottomans offering up a heavy response under their most accomplished general, Topol Osman Pasha, who manages to deal Nader the only defeat of his storied career, a devastating loss at the Battle of Samara that throws his future into doubt, sparking rebellions in Iran calling for Tamas's reinstatement. Nader, unwilling to bend, 
understanding military success remained the key to his future. In what can only be described as a fantastical recovery, rebuilding his army in a mere three months, and immediately setting forth to crush Topol Osman Pasha at the Battle of Kirkuk, ruthlessly put down the internal uprisings, and then invade the Caucasus, topping this campaign off with yet another unbelievable example of his battlefield mastery, leading 15,000 to overcome an opposing force of 80,000 Ottomans at the Battle of Yagavard in 1735, not only completing the reclamation of all the Iranian lands on its western flank, but also leaving no viable opposition to his ascension to the Persian throne. In 1736, officially raised as Nader Shah, founder of the Afsharid Iranian Empire. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com.